Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. It's always great to gather with God's people to worship and pray. And uh, what a privilege it is to get to share from the Word of God with you this morning. Thank you, Tobin, and the rest of our worship band for leading us so well this morning. Yeah. The, uh, that last song harkens to a story from Jesus' ministry, one of the parables where he talks about the shepherd who, who leaves the 99 sheep. He, a shepherd has 100 sheep. One of them runs away. The shepherd leaves the 99, goes running after the one to find it and bring it home. It reminds us of God's care for us. And over and over again in Scripture, we read about God's care for us and God's love for us. I've been thinking recently about the, the powerful message of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is, is that shepherding image of God. The, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the buses in the city of Quito where we served as missionaries, about uh, two out of three, uh, half, who knows, quite a few. In the very front of the bus, when you walk in, the, the front above the driver, it would say, El Señor es mi pastor, the Lord is my shepherd. And if it was a really spiritual driver, they would include, nada me faltará, I, I lack nothing. And uh, so we always worried a little bit uh, that uh, we were walking into the valley of the shadow of death as we walked into a city bus in Quito. Because as, as Psalm 23 goes on, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will be my comfort, your rod and your staff, they guide me. Uh, and And so... Psalm 23. We have an interesting, an interesting part of our story. About four years ago, Alyssa and I were going through a, a challenging time in life, uh, a time with a lot of uncertainty. We gathered together. There was a celebration in our honor during that time uh, when, with our missionary colleagues and the people that we worked with on the seminary campus there in Quito. And there all of our, all of the people we worked with were gathered together. All of the children, there were way too many children, and cake was involved, so it was wild times in the conference room of our mission office, as it often was when cake was involved, and there were way too many children always. And so we, uh, in, in those celebrations, though, those, those times of gathering together, one of the traditions in, in Ecuador is that we would go around the room and everybody would say a blessing to the person or the group that was being celebrated. So on birthdays, Alyssa and I learned that we had to go prepared with a blessing for the, the person who we were celebrating because while we got to the point eventually in our Spanish that we could just rattle off a blessing, we, we learned early on by being embarrassed a few times that we didn't have words to bless anybody in Spanish, and it was, it was customary, and we were the missionaries, you know, I, I was called pastor everywhere I went, and so I needed to be able to bless people, so we learned to prepare ourselves, we learned that we, we knew this was always coming when we gathered in celebrations. In, in that moment, we, we were facing a great deal of uncertainty. We were, we were the guests of honor, and the decision was made by whoever was the host that day that we would go around the room. Everybody would write a passage of scripture down for us that would be something we could hold on to and take with us. And, and so we, we came to this point. Everybody took a few minutes to write on a note card a, a passage of scripture, and then the 
the group went around the room and read off the, the passage of scripture that, that they read. And you know, these are, these are seminary professors and missionaries. So I was accepting, expecting like some deep cuts from scripture here, you know, at least, at least one or two Zephaniah 7, or 317s, Zephaniah 317, you know, the Lord is my warrior. He sings over me with songs of joy. Um, the, I, I was expecting, you know, passages I had never heard before. Isaiah applied in a different light than I had ever heard. I, you know, I had, I had grand expectations for, for the incredible depth of, of scripture searching that was going to have happened for this. And to, to my surprise a little bit, about half, maybe three quarters of, of our friends and colleagues wrote down in that moment, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, nothing shall I lack. Um, and, and, you know, I was, I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was a little disappointed because I thought, well, th- I mean, this is an opportunity. I know Psalm 23, right? Like this is an opportunity to, to shed some new light, some new wisdom on, on our situation. I, I thought maybe something. And as I've reflected on that experience though, I, I really have come around to believing that that was the collective wisdom of God's people for us in a moment like that. We, we needed a reminder of God's ability to watch over us and to protect us. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil. And so I'm, I'm sure that you have those moments in your life that come to mind where, where Psalm 23 maybe was a particular help to you. Maybe there, there was a time when you felt like, oh, we are walking through the valley of the shadow right now. And you needed to hear, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You needed, you needed the comfort of, of God's special care for you in, in that moment, not knowing What's going to happen tomorrow? Not knowing how am I going to make it through this situation. Well, this morning for wisdom, we turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua. It's the book that brings the exodus of God's people from Egypt to a close. Uh, we, we remember that way back, if we go back to, to the beginning of Genesis, and 15 chapters into Genesis, we meet Abraham. Abraham was promised that his children would be as many as the stars in the sky, and that they would live in the land that God had promised him. And Abraham had a son, and his grandson was named Jacob. Jacob fought with an angel one night, and his name was changed from then on to Israel. And in order to outlive a famine that came upon that promised land that God had given, Israel took his family into Egypt. And they were welcomed as honored guests at first because of one of Israel's sons that had helped pave the way for everyone to survive the famine. But after a few years, they became, they went from being honored guests to being made slaves in Egypt and eventually heavily oppressed slaves. And then at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read how the Lord appointed a man named Moses. And Moses came and and called to God's people and told the, the folks in Egypt, it's time for us to get back to the land that God had promised our ancestors. And so over the course of, of the plagues, God softened Egypt to the point that they were ready to say, 
slaves, Israelite slaves, go on home, get out of here. And the last miracle was the miracle of Passover, when the firstborn of every person in Egypt was killed. And the miracle of Passover was that because the the Israelites had sacrificed a lamb and put the blood from that lamb over their doorways, the angel that struck the firstborn dead passed over the houses of the Israelites, and none of the Israelite firstborn were killed. Then they went through the Red Sea, they wandered for 40 years in the desert, and they finally got to the point of entering the promised land, this land that had been promised to them for generations now, generation after generation after generation, hundreds of years. God's people had been waiting to settle it. And the passage we're looking at today uh, comes from the book of Joshua, which tells the story of the, the children of Israel settling the land that God had promised. And, and we're looking at a story from early, early on in, in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. And uh, in, let me just kind of catch you up where, where Joshua goes. In, in Joshua 1, it's, it's God's call to, to Joshua and Joshua telling the people, the Israelites, let's go. It's time to, it's time to head over. They found themselves on the east side of the Jordan River, the, the promised land lay west of the Jordan River from where they were. And so they were on the east side of the Jordan River, across from the city, this big, impressive, well-fortified city of Jericho. And so in chapter 2, Joshua sent spies across the Jordan River and into the city of Jericho. And they weren't very stealthy, apparently, because it was discovered that there were some spies from Israel spying around Jericho. And so the spies had to be protected by a woman who's a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab hid the spies, and, and then they, they returned to report back to Joshua what they had seen in Jericho. And then in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, we get the miracle of, of the people crossing the Jordan River. And it's a miracle because the Joshua tells us that the river was at flood stage and God stopped the water. God stopped the water and the people walked across on dry land. In chapter 4, they throw a party and, and memorialize the event. They put stones on the, on the west side of the Jordan River, one for every tribe. And uh, the parents of children's quizzers will know the uh, verse uh, in the future when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them. It's a song, you know. And so that, that's Joshua four seventeen, I think, if I remember correctly from the song. And then we get to, to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5 begins with just a summary. Verse 1 is a summary of how scared all of the kings are on the west side of the Jordan River. All of the kings in the promised land. Why are there so many kings, by the way? Just a little Bible, Bible trivia. The, historically, there are so many kings because the promised land was, was not one giant nation as it would become under King David. It was, it was city-states. And so these city-states were like Jericho. There would be a king of Jericho, and he was, he was autonomous from all of the other kings around. They might work together sometimes. We see uh, the, the kings of uh, the promised land like teaming up against God's people at times. 
uh, making alliances with one another. And God's people were not supposed to make alliances with any of the kings in the promised land. They were supposed to come in and, and take the land that God had promised them, not, not uh, settle alongside the people that were already there. So that's verse 1. Verse 2 through 8 in Joshua chapter 5 is the, the story of uh, when the Lord instructs Joshua to circumcise all of the men who had grown old enough to fight during the Exodus. So they had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. A bunch of men had grown up and they had not been circumcised. Circumcision was a practice of among God's people from, from the time of Abraham. So for generations and generations, God's people had practiced it. They'd practiced it all through, through their time in Egypt, but when they went into the wilderness, for some reason, the practice had stopped. So all of the men had to be circumcised that, that were uh, of fighting age, it says. And uh, then circumcision really sets up the passage that we're, we're going to look at today, which is verses 9 through 12, because we're going to read about the children of Israel celebrating Passover for the first time in the land. And when God initially gave the instructions about the Passover in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, he told the people that no uncircumcised person may celebrate the Passover with you. So this meant that these, these men were, were able to celebrate the Passover. This was a necessary prerequisite. Circumcision is a necessary prerequisite to Passover. And, and we see the instructions about Passover a handful of times in the first five books of the Bible. The, it, it appears as though it's being repeated to the people on, on numerous occasions. And it seems like in the giving of some of those instructions, it seems like maybe the people are celebrating the Passover. But it also may be that it was just the instructions being repeated. And it may be that this is the first time that the Passover meal is celebrated to remember what God had done for his people in Egypt. It, it may be the first time. It's certainly the first time that these men who are now of fighting age were able to participate because they, they were not able to. They were invited to the table for the first time now. And so verse 8 says there's a time to heal and uh, you need to to recover, and then we get into Joshua verse 9, and let me just read for you Joshua 9, or Joshua chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place was called Gilgal to this day. When the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. The very next day, they began to eat unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. Verse 12, no manna appeared on the day they first ate from the crops of the land, and it was never again, never seen again. So from that time on, the Israelites ate from the crops of Canaan. Now, looking at this passage, I'm just going to walk verse by verse really, really quickly through this passage. Uh, the interesting note in verse 9 is about Gilgal. Gilgal is this place that gets mentioned frequently in the Old Testament, shows up especially in the early stories of God's people settling the promised land. It shows up in Joshua a handful of times. It shows up in the stories of Samuel. 
uh, into the stories of David. And later on, it's not as an important a place, but early in the Old Testament, we see a lot of, a lot of mention of, of Gilgal. And my Bible includes a footnote in verse 9 that says the Hebrew word that means to roll is galal. And so it turns out that Gilgal is, is a play on words because as God's people have entered into the promised land, God says, I've rolled away your shame. The, the shame of being slaves in Egypt had followed the Israelites through the wilderness. It had followed them all the way to this point. And, and God says, right now, now that you're in the promised land, now that you've crossed over into the Jordan River, now your shame is gone. No longer do you have to worry about the shame of having been slaves in Egypt. That shame, it is mentioned like over and over again before this. In, in the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about how shameful it was for God's people to, to be slaves and the way that they were treated in Egypt. And not only was, was slavery itself, but this lengthy period of wandering in the desert, of being people that were big and strong, really, and, but had no land of their own, had no place that, that God had given them yet. And, and so the, the people had set foot into the promised land sort of ashamed, ashamed. And, and then God says, we are removing shame now. There is no shame in being an Israelite now. There's no shame. The, the, the past shame is gone. And you are in the promised land anew. You are in the promised land and, and you are restored to be the glorious people that I have called you to be. And I love the, the idea that Gilgal shows up repeatedly in the Old Testament. I love how, how this place, because there are places, significant places in the Old Testament that get named and mentioned one time, and then they're gone. You don't, you don't hear about them again. But Gilgal shows up in the stories of God's people over and over again. And, and, and it's, to me, it's a beautiful reminder of God's of God's generosity and God's kindness, God's restoration. God wants his people to remember, Gilgal, your shame's rolled away. You are not to be ashamed of who you are. You are not to be ashamed of, of being my people. And so it repeats in, in the Old Testament and in the stories we read. Then in verse 10, we, we read about the people celebrating the Passover for the first time in the Promised Land. And really, these, these two acts of celebrating the Passover and of circumcision, which is recorded earlier in the chapter, these are clear indicators of the seriousness of God's people for participating fully in the covenant that God has established between himself and them. So God, God has promised to be in relationship with them. He has created this covenant, this, this relationship, this way of, of living together. And, and the people... Simply, simply were called to obey and to, to live in it. God's faithfulness was going to be, to be extended, uh, and, and God was going to invite people to participate whenever they would. And, and so, here in, in Joshua chapter 5, we see clear indication that God's people intend to be faithful to the covenant with God. They, they intend to establish or reestablish themselves as covenant, God's covenant people as they're entering into this new land. And, and so the first thing they do, the first thing they do to demonstrate their sincerity of following God's law is circumcision and then observing the Passover. 
we are going to, to celebrate this, this important day for people who are in covenant with God. And, and in these first chapters of Joshua, we see God undoing, you know, rolling away the shame, undoing so many of the things that, that are from the past um, uh, in Egypt. There, there's incredible symmetry, symmetry between the, the Passover, that, that first Passover in Egypt where the angel passed over the houses of the Israelite slaves and, and they were, their firstborn were safe. And, and, then, and then at the end, this, this first Passover in the land, God's people reestablishing themselves, reaffirming that they are God's people now in the promised land. Uh, the, the symmetry doesn't end there, though. The, the people go into the wilderness through the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is like the closing of the door on Egypt, right? The, the Red Sea, God's, God's people cross through on dry ground. The, the Egyptian army follows them. God closes the water over them. There is no more Egyptian army that can come and pursue the Israelites as they wander through the desert. And then at the end, God opens the, the Jordan River. The people walk through on dry ground. It's supposed to sound familiar to us after we've read the story of the Red Sea. And God's people walk through on dry ground, and then they enter into the promised land. They've been in the wilderness, receiving from God's hand special provision all this time. They walk into the promised land, and, and they discover that they're suddenly in hostile territory again. That's an interesting piece of the symmetry that, that I, I, God, God brought people out of the hostility of Egypt, took them through the wilderness, and then he brings them into the promised land. But it's not just to rest. It's, it's not a vacation here in the promised land. It is for the people to continue to trust God to receive all of the blessing that God has in store for his people in the promised land. In verse 10, the, the date is noted, and that's just so that we're sure everybody's on the up and up here. Yes, that is the proper date. That's the right date. Don't, don't you question Joshua. He is celebrating Passover on the correct date. As Moses had received the law from God, God had commanded that be on the 14th day of the first month, every year. And so right here, 14th day, first month, it's celebrated. And then verse 11, in verse 11, it says that they began to eat the unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. And this is also according to the instructions that God had given Moses in, in the wilderness. The people were supposed to, for, for seven days, starting on the 15th day, the day after Passover, they were supposed to eat uh, unleavened bread, not supposed to eat any, any yeast bread. Just so we're on the same page, you can, you can use baking powder. Uh, that doesn't count. Your, your bread, it, it, has, it, it can't rise for more than 18 minutes. That's the rule. So if it rises for more than 18 minutes, leavened. Doesn't right? So biscuits, quick breads, just, just just so we're on the same page. The things you study, you know, you just sometimes you study something and it sticks in your brain and I don't know why. 
Anyway. Passover actually begins the time of eating unleavened bread. And so the, uh, the day before, the 14th, is the first day of eating everything without, without leaven. Uh, and, and so they, they have to clean out all of the yeast, get rid of all of the leaven, throw it away, and, and they, uh, they begin on Passover eating unleavened bread. It's interesting to me to think about the, the Passover meal. The, the, this is the timing. I wish it was like really, really spelled out in, in these verses because the, the timing of it, it makes it sound like the Passover could have been the very last meal that God's people used manna in, in, uh, in, in baking and making. Uh, manna is that mysterious bread, that mysterious like substance that appeared on the ground like frost every morning as the people traveled in, in the wilderness. And, and so the writer, the writer of Joshua includes the detail that they were eating also during, during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they were also eating from the roasted grain of the land that they harvested in the land. Now Joshua 3 tells us that the crossing of the Jordan River happened during what season? Flood season and harvest. Thank you, quizzing coach. Dina, thank you. Well done. It's during the harvest season, and so they would have crossed over into fields that were ripe for harvest. They would have crossed over, and you know, these were fields that were planted by people who were living there, uh, but there's, you know, thousands of them, and if you had a garden planted and all of a sudden thousands of people gathered in your backyard and started eating from your garden, there probably wouldn't be much you could do either. And so the Israelites come in and they begin eating from these crops that they didn't plant, and uh, they, they, they begin to eat this, this, the roasted grain of the land. And while they're enjoying the produce of the land, we, we read what happens next in verse 12. They're enjoying the, the uh, produce of the land when the manna stops. The manna stops the day they ate the food from the land the day they ate it. The book of Joshua says that manna never was seen again. That's kind of disappointing, right? Don't you wish like every 50 years, God would just like show us what manna was like? Like I would, I would put that day on my calendar and wake up early to make sure I saw what manna was like. It's just, it's a curious thing. Manna means basically what's it? Like it, it what is it? It's, uh, and, and so you know, they don't have like a real clear way of describing exactly what it was. People say it was like cornflakes, but how do they know? So, <laughs> so from this time on, then, really, I mean, how do you, how does anybody know? We should pray for manna. Great idea, Jordan. Okay, we'll, we'll work that out theologically. But. So the book of Joshua, it's never seen again. From that time on, they ate from the crops of Canaan. Canaan, by the way, is just the oldest name for the promised land. When, when Abraham moved into a land that God would show him, it turned out it was Canaan. And so that's the, that's the name for the land. And this, this moment is just 
so packed with meaning for God's people as they have left the promised land or left the, their land of slavery, finished their time of wandering in the wilderness. They get to this time when the manna stops. And the manna stopping is just this incredibly interesting paradox in so many ways. It's amazing to think of that, that for 40 years, an entire generation, like that's essentially my lifetime, uh, God had provided for his people in, in the wilderness with this miraculous source of food. This miraculous thing that God had did. They didn't have to plant it. They didn't have to water it. They didn't have to weed it. They had to wake up early enough that it didn't burn off because apparently it would burn off during the day. And, and then it says that there would be enough for that day. Every day there would be enough for that day. On, on Friday they could gather uh, twice as much as they needed and it would stay good until the Sabbath was over. They could grind it up and, and make bread out of it. If they kept it overnight uh, on any day that wasn't the day before the Sabbath, it got worms in it and was gross. <laughs> it's weird stuff. And in this passage, in this passage, God's people cross into the promise that they had been waiting to experience for, for at least 40 years. They walk into what they, they had been anticipating for, for many of these people their entire lifetime. All they had known was a nomadic life in the wilderness, looking forward to that day when they would cross over into the land that God had promised them. And, and as, they, as they looked forward to it, they, they lose God's daily provision the miracle of the manna stops. And it, there's, no, there's no process to it. It's there one day, it's gone the next. There's no weaning God's people off of the manna. There's no, there's no like tapering down. I hope it didn't upset their stomachs to eat from the produce of the land. The, it's just gone. It's just gone. And... The paradox is that the manna stopping is really a sign of God's faithfulness. Because from now on, God's people are going to have their needs met by the natural order of God's creation. By the natural order of God's creation as people who live and work in a land that they call their own. This is a sign that God has fulfilled his promise to his people. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Moses in Egypt. And it's actually the promise that God had made to Abraham standing in that exact land hundreds of years before them. And in many ways, it's a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve when he created them and placed them in a garden and said, you will, you will Harvest from the bounty of this garden and all of your needs will be supplied by the natural order of what I have created for you. See, God's best provision for his people in, in so many ways is, is placing people in creation and allowing creation to just do its thing, to provide for us. 
it, it takes a little bit of work on our part, right? But God, God says, creation is abundant for you, for your good, for your provision. And, and God's incredible blessing to us, God's plan for us is for us to, to work alongside creation, to pull out the weeds, to plant the seeds, and creation just miraculously provides for us. And all this tells me then that manna, this free bread, every day, as much as you need to stay alive, is not the real blessing that it appears to be. We know from the stories in the, during the Exodus that God's people were not all that enthralled with manna. All we have to eat is this terrible manna day after day. All we have to eat is the same thing, manna again, manna today, stewed manna for breakfast and baked manna for dinner, right? There's manna every day. The people get sick of it. And so when we consider all of the amazing types of fruit, foods, fruits and vegetables that God's creation produces naturally, when there's a little bit of water and somebody looking over it, and we can see what an incredible blessing it was for the people to not have to eat manna every day. What a blessing it was. The, 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 the natural produce of Canaan was, was indescribably better than this miraculous gift of God every day, enough every day to keep you alive. And so still the paradox of, of the end of manna remains when God's people enter the land where they are truly blessed, it means their free meals disappear. And, and then the real blessing of God is the blessing of being able to work for your lunch. Um, and really, it points to the reality that stasis and equilibrium and, and a little bit of, of time to settle in one spot is a blessing. Stasis is a blessing. Sometimes we think like the monotony of day after day and life can be kind of boring. God blesses us with the boring. God's blessing is, is equilibrium in life. God's blessing is, is stasis. When, when we have to go and work every day to provide because that's God's created order. That's the blessing that God has, has planned for us. This is how God intends for us to be blessed. And so this, this passage has me thinking a lot about, about the special provision that God offers us from time to time. You know, manna only lasted so long. It took the people through the period of wandering in the desert and then the blessing of entering the land and, and eventually finding some stasis in the land was was the true blessing that God intended for him for his people and and so the special blessing of manna ended now Jesus echoes this story in in a lot of ways when we look at the life of Jesus we we see Jesus do things that seem similar to what God does for his people in the exodus think about Jesus's miraculous gift of bread to people in the wilderness who had stayed up too late listening to him to get home to feed themselves. Uh, that's just like a cool little parallel. God provides miraculous bread. He, he breaks the loaves and fishes and everybody eats plenty. But then 
he promised the people that they, they should daily feast on him. Uh, he gets in trouble for this because he told the disciples that they would be sustained by eating his body and drinking his blood. The religious teachers didn't like that, and, uh, and they wanted to kill him because he said it. But then there, there is the paradox of the blessing of Jesus' presence ending, yet multiplying. You know, the disciples, when, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples thought, all of the plans that Jesus had for establishing the kingdom of heaven, all of the plans that Jesus had for, for bringing about blessings for the people who followed him, the disciples were sure it was all over. They, sure, they were sure that it was done. They, they, they thought, even though Jesus had called his shot, he had told them many times he was going to Jerusalem to be, to be crucified, and that he'd raise again on the third day. They, when Jesus went to the cross, they thought, it's all over. It's all over. But we know that because Jesus died, we, we can experience forgiveness for our sins. Uh, that we are set right in our relationship with God. And we know that because Jesus ascended to heaven, he was able to send the Holy Spirit. And so no longer is, is the presence of God in one person, at one, one place, one time, through, through all of time, the presence of God is now everywhere because Jesus ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit for his disciples. And for everyone who believes in him, we can receive his Holy Spirit. He is present with us, the Spirit of Jesus, just as if the person of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago was right here. The Spirit of Jesus is right here here. It couldn't happen if he didn't go to heaven. He told us that. He told his disciples, it's better for you if I go away. And so paradoxically, it was for our good that Jesus would go to, to heaven, and, and we wouldn't be able to physically see him with our eyes any longer. But we would have to trust But occasionally, uh, occasionally though, it seems that we do need a special, a special blessing from God, and we need special help. You know, when we live in stasis, I, th I think we are blessed. Right now, the stasis that we live in is to experience daily Jesus' presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is a great, amazing gift. It's stasis for us. That is baseline Christian living. We, we live in the power of the Holy Spirit day in and day out. We experience his Holy Spirit day in and day out. That is, that is baseline Christian living. That is stasis. But occasionally, we find ourselves in, in seasons of life and in times when we need a special touch of God's provision, a special measure of God's grace for us. In, in our lives, these special occasions, they, they can only last so long. Right? Crisis can't be our baseline. <laughs> if, if we're in crisis, the children of Israel, they wandered the wilderness, they were in crisis for 40 years. That's not healthy. That's not, that's not right. That's not God's intention for us. But in our lives, there are specific moments when we can receive special grace from God. I think that one of the moments when we receive special grace from God is as new believers, 
When, when a person comes to the Lord for the first time, or when a person has wandered away and said, you know what, I'm going to get serious with God, I'm going to, I'm going to submit to God's will for my life, I, I believe that there is special grace in those moments. There's special grace for people who, who have a burning desire to grow. And, and there, there is special grace for, for growth in those seasons. Eventually, you know, we, we can go through, we can only go so long receiving that special grace before, before God says, okay, it's time for you to start tilling the ground a little bit. It's time for you, it's time for you to pull some weeds. It's time for you to, to start sweating a little bit, to, to receive, to grow all that, that I've called you to grow. But I, in, in those first, first steps with the Lord, I, I think there is special grace. And then in, in our lives, during times of crisis, we see, we see God's special grace. In moments when we, when we don't know how to carry on, God's grace sustains us and carries us through. In difficulty and trial. These are, these are only periods of time. They're, they're not the new normal. They, they are crises moments. Eventually, God, God carries us for a while, but eventually God puts us back down and says, okay, my child, it's time to walk. It's time to keep going. And so this morning, let me, let me encourage you if you are in a season of special grace. If, if you feel like you're going through the fire, it's okay. It's actually probably good. If you feel like you're going through the fire, know that it's in the fire that God does his refining work in us. And the world may be upside down. When it comes back to right, you're going to see the amazing work that God could only do in you while you were going through the fire. In, as, as a pastor, I, I never relish challenges for, for people. But as a pastor, I've seen over and over how God has done amazing things in the lives of people who have gone through trials that they would have never, never asked for, never hoped for, never would have imagined, but God did something in their lives extraordinary because they, they lived through that difficult chapter. And so if you're, if you're in a season of receiving special grace, don't rush it, don't rush it. God left the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. <laughs> it took 40 years. Like I said, crisis is not supposed to be our baseline. It's not healthy. It's not good for us to live in constant crisis. It's not good for us to go from crisis to crisis to crisis. If that's your reality, it's time to pause and think about why that's the case. But God does... God does patiently work with us in these times of special grace, these times when, when we're just waiting to see what he's going to do next. Now, if you're in a time that seems, seems like, man, this can't be special grace. This is dry. This is the stasis. It's kind of boring. If you're in a season that, that seems like that, I, I'd encourage you to remember what God has done for you in the past. Remember what God has done for you. There, no doubt, 
you can look back to a time when you walked in God's special grace. When you, you were walking through the fire and, and God's presence was right there with you. For, for many of us, stasis can just, it can, it's not as exciting as crisis. But it turns out it's the place that God blesses us with. It's what we, it's what we receive for being faithful in the difficulty. And so thank God. Thank God that you're not facing a crisis right now. Thank God that you're, you're not in the middle of the fire. Thank, thank God for where you are. And keep going. Keep going. Keep walking with the Lord. Keep expecting that he, this is the blessing he's given me. How can I bless others with, with the, this, this stasis that I have, this, this period of time where, where I'm not just fighting to survive? And keep going. Lent, the season that we're in preparing for Easter, is a season of, of seeking God's special grace. And we put ourselves in the way of grace uh, all the more intentionally during Lent. We intentionally fast. We intentionally give things up. We intentionally take practices on to put ourselves in the way of God's grace so that we can experience God's work in our hearts in a new and fresh way. And so with just the last, there's just three weeks left of Lent, just a, a few weeks left, will you plan on, on seeking God's grace for you Maybe, maybe through, through putting yourself into his word more. Maybe through fasting. Maybe, maybe through special prayer. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to, to reach out with love to, to someone else. But I encourage you to, to seek God's special grace in this season. Seek God so that you can be, you can be ready to celebrate all the more as we gather on Easter Sunday celebrate the resurrection. Will you let me pray for you as we, as we plan for, for this season? We stand and let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the paradox of your grace. We thank you for, for this strange reality that that this stasis that can kind of seem boring and dry in our lives is actually what you intend for us. You intend for us to, to be well cared for. You intend for us to not be worried about tomorrow. You intend for us to have hope. You intend for us to be at peace, Lord. And so because this is your, your intention for us, we ask God that you would give us Give us this stasis. Give us the, this equilibrium in life where we, we can know that you're working, where we can see where you've worked in the past and where we can continue on with peace in our hearts and hope. But Lord, we know that we, we go through challenges and difficulties as well in this life. That not all this life is equilibrium. And so God... When our balance is thrown out of whack, when, when our hearts are troubled, when, when we don't know if we can pray Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall, nothing shall I lack. Lord, we, we open our hearts to you to receive your grace in that moment.
for my brothers and sisters who are walking through the valley of the shadow right now. I pray that they would receive your special grace. That each morning they'd wake up and it would seem like like a special blessing has fallen on them for this day. That each day they would recognize your hand moving in them and around them to protect them, provide for them. That each day they would know that you have brought them through. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us patience in those moments of crisis and trial. Give us patience to see what you are doing. And give us trust to know that you can work in ways that we can't see in ourselves. That as we go through the fire, it's where your refining happens, Lord. We thank you for this reality. I pray that you would continue to draw these dear brothers and sisters deeper into your presence during this season of Lent. Help them, Lord, to experience your amazing grace, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.